Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, service, and the inner life. Join us now for part one of a four-part conversation with Brother David Stendelrast and Michael Lerner as they explore Brother David Stendelrast's spiritual biography. Brother David, welcome. Thank you very much, Michael. Our intention today is to create together a form of spiritual biography, a, a record of your journey over these past 85, 86 years. But before we do that, I wanted to ask if, if we could start with a prayer. And I wondered if you would uh, open with a prayer for the small group of us who are gathered here, just for us to sit in silence with you for a moment and hear that prayer. Giver of all good gifts, we thank you for this day. We thank you for each one of us here present, each one of us being a gift to the others. We ask you <coughs> to inspire us, to inspire Michael to ask the right questions and to help me find answers that will be faithful and true and honest and help all those who might see this program and listen to this program in the future. And we give you thanks and praise for being together here. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother David. So in thinking about how to form the spiritual biography, um, if you were me, how would you approach it? <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about it, but on the spur of the moment, I would think I would ask you about some high spots in your life. Uh, because I think it's these high spots that determine our mm -hmm. direction and mm -hmm. um, give us our vision. Mm -hmm. And by high spots, do you mean what you often quote Abraham Maslow as calling peak experiences? That's, right. Yes, that would be another name for it. Mm -hmm. I think so. And as you quote Maslow, you point out that up to the end of his life, he said that peak experiences were absolutely mystical experiences. Yeah, I could, they were mystical experiences. Uh, just the name didn't sit so well in and psychological literature, mm -hmm. so he called them peak experiences. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what was your earliest uh, high spot or peak experience that you can remember? Well, uh, I'm... Uh, prepared for this because I just recently led uh, a week on peak experiences together with a Buddhist teacher in Switzerland. 
And, and <coughs> for the first two days, we talked about peak experiences from the Buddhist point of view and from the Christian tradition, mystic experiences. Then in the middle day, uh, it was a group of 35, we remembered our own peak experiences. And then the last two days, we talked about how do you now uh, translate the insights and uh, guidance that you got in those moments? How do you translate that into your daily life? Mm -hmm. So uh, I remember at that time I had to make a list of my own peak experiences. And the first one was when I was about <clears throat> four, I would think, four or five. Uh, I was in a dream, actually. Um, and only two uh, of those peak experiences were in dreams. And um, it was a very simple dream, but really uh, determining, I guess, uh, for much more so than I realized, uh, certainly much more so than I realized at the time. At the time, I just noticed it as important so that I would never forget the dream. But, and I dreamt that I was going down the stairs. And we lived in a house where my grandmother and great-grandmother lived upstairs. And there was a stone a spiral staircase going down. And uh, the rest of the family lived downstairs. And I was going down and coming up sort of out of the dark was Jesus. And we met on the stairs. And instead of passing one another, we sort of fused into one another. And, uh, and that was all of the dream. Uh, but it, it was, I think it gave me for the rest of my life um, a completely different attitude to Jesus not being sort of out there and over against, but somehow within me. Uh, this is all reflection on it later on. Uh, it was just an experience, and it was an important experience, and I kind of treasured it. Mm. Was that the first experience that you had where Jesus came alive for you, or was he always alive in your life from as long as you can remember? Well, you know, that was very early on, yeah. so I don't remember much, from, uh, much else from that time. Mm. But I remember that there was a picture of Jesus. That's why I would recognize even who it was. And my grandmother had a picture of Jesus over her bed, and she would tell me about him. And uh, in the uh, rest of um, my life, actually, I was very interested in Christology, and I was interested in the life of Jesus and so forth. But the focus of my interest is far less on Jesus, but uh, much more on the Christ. We speak of Jesus Christ, and it's important to hold the balance, because if we speak only about Christ, well, that's the Christ reality in us, or the Buddha nature, whichever name we want to give to that reality, each tradition has its own way of speaking about it. If you only focus on that, uh, you can uh, make out of it anything that you dream up. Uh, you have no uh, 
nothing to compare it with, no standard is set. Uh, Jesus and the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus kind of set the standard for Jesus Christ. Uh, If you only uh, talk about Jesus and are only interested in Jesus, then uh, it becomes irrelevant after a while. What does that have to do with me? That's a man who lived 2,000 years ago. It might be very interesting, maybe very beautiful, but... uh, the connection is to me the important thing. And different people in my experience put the emphasis very differently. For many people, Jesus is very, it's absolutely the important thing, although the Christ reality also sort of swings with it. Uh, and uh, for me, it was definitely always the Christ reality, and, and Jesus was. Um, far less important in my life, even though you should think it might be different, but that's the way it was. When you say that the Christ reality was always the most important dimension, looking back at that first dream, did you have an intuition even then of these different dimensions? Of, no. uh-huh. Not at all. So when, when did that, in, in your book, Gratefulness, uh, you have a wonderful uh, glossary at the end where you describe 54 words um, that have had profound meaning for you. And one of those words, two actually in that sense, are Jesus Christ. And you speak of the tension Mm -hmm. if you don't balance both Jesus and the Christ. When did that sense of the distinction between the historical Jesus and the Christ reality become a living presence in your life? Oh, I would think that, uh, that was much, much later. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably uh, many years after I became a monk. Mm-hmm. And it, <clears throat> my memory may deceive me there, but I can only follow <laughs> my best recollection. And as I would now recollect it, it would probably be the time when uh, I met other monks, uh, Buddhist monks and uh, Swami Satchitananda and uh, and uh, representatives of other traditions and recognized that this core reality which we called Christ in us, as mm-hmm. Paul says, mm-hmm. I live yet not I, Christ lives in me. And that I heard uh, long ago, that I heard all along. But I recognized that these people had that too. It was the same thing, they just would call it by other names. Mm-hmm. And I think at that time, I would make that distinction and see how were the two related to one another. I'm pretty sure at that time it was probably, now let's see, that would be in the early 60s. So uh, I was probably around 40 or so. So that was the point at which your superior at the uh, Mount Savior Monastery encouraged you to enter the Buddhist-Christian dialogue and go out yeah. into that world. Well, at first he just sent me uh, to study Zen with uh, 
uh, it was Yastani Roshi who taught there, but he only came uh, a couple of times a year to the Sendo in New York, and uh, Taisan, now Edo Roshi, was a young monk, and he kept the Sendo rolling, and uh, so I got permission to go down there, and I was not all that eager. Never? <laughs> no, 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 I was very happy in, in my own monastery. So that must have been extraordinary uh, that your uh, superior, uh, um, I'm looking for his name. Uh, Father Damasus Vincent. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he must have seen something in you that made him want you to be the emissary to this Buddhist uh, encounter with Christianity. That could be. Uh, he was... Uh, uh, he had studied, I think he was a professor of comparative religion in Germany before he came to this country. Mm -hmm. And he came to this country because he was also uh, working with youth as a youth chaplain. He was a monk of Maria Lach in Germany. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then when the Nazis came, that was very dangerous. Mm -hmm. So they sent him over to America to be in safety, and they also asked him to start a monastery over here because they were afraid that Maria Lach would be suspended by the, or closed by the, by the Nazis, and then they would have a place to flee to. That was, must have been somewhere between 33 and, uh, and when the war broke out, because after that he couldn't flee anymore. Well, the monastery uh, was never closed by the Nazis, mm -hmm. that was fortunate. Uh, he stayed here, founded a monastery in New Jersey, which didn't succeed because uh, the, that was just at the beginning of the war, and now there were no young people who could join a monastery. So, uh, it, and that didn't succeed. And then after the war, he started Mount Saviour. And uh, he, yes, I guess, I think, he must have seen something in me that he sent me and not somebody else, I don't know. Uh, but I think he saw the importance of this work because uh, it went for quite a long time, uh, I would say probably a year or, or more, uh, since I met uh, Tai-san and uh, he invited me right away to come and, and study at the Sendo, and when I finally got permission, there were many things in between. Uh, and uh, I told the abbot that I had had this invitation, and he said, oh yeah, that's a, a very good idea, it's wonderful. Uh, he didn't say you should go, and I was the last one to say I would like to go, because I was perfectly happy where I was. So several times when uh, Tyson would write, or when are you coming down? I would tell the album, good idea, good idea. And that's, <laughs> that's where I stayed, nothing, nothing further happened. Then this was the time of the Vietnam War and the protests against the war, so we went, to, uh, I was invited to um, Ann Arbor for, the, for one of the teachings, the second teach-in, when the students closed all the classes, no classes that day, and they invited speakers and they talked about the war and how could you end the war and so forth. 
<laughs> and so I thought that would be nice to put, take a Buddhist along, uh, Vietnam, Catholics, Buddhists, that would make a good team, and we would issue a manifesto somewhere in a newspaper, which we did. Uh, but uh, his friends told him not to go, it was dangerous, he would be deported and, and all that. Uh, he stuck out his neck and uh, so we went together and then we had to share a room. And that was a, already a great experience because uh, we, we moved like two goldfish that had been in the same bowl for 10 years. We, we were, uh, two monks, you see, and, and it was this monastic thing that connected us. No questions. We weren't talking. One never was talking when the other one didn't want to talk. Uh, and all this sort of thing. It's a perfect fit. And uh, so uh, all that made me interested, but not so interested that I really wanted to go there. Then he came to the monastery, uh, because I suggested that I would, why don't you bring him up and, and look him over? Uh, because he was so insistent. And then he came to the monastery and he uh, spent a few days with us and gave talks to the monks. And uh, they asked him all the wrong questions, all these theological questions, and he gave all the wrong answers, these Zen answers. And I was just sitting there quietly and thinking, that's the end of that story. Uh, and when it was over, uh, he said, uh, everybody in the monastery said, well, what he was talking about, we really didn't understand. But that's not so important. They said, the way he walks and the way he sits and the way he eats uh, was so convincing. This is a monk and you should go down. And then I was singled out and I was sent down. Two, two weeks later, I was down there. At first for half a year, and then another half a year, and then another year, and another year. So it was altogether three years down there. Uh, but it it wasn't as if I were so eager to go out and uh, become a, a Buddhist or anything of that sort. But I was happy. I, I was enjoying it. And it was interesting. I had to study Japanese at the time because it, as an alibi, it was totally unacceptable at that time that I, a Benedictine monk would go just to study Buddhism, and the, Buddhism, the Zen studies were kind of on the side. There are so many directions that we could take this. <laughs> but let's go back to the peak experiences. What is the next peak experience that you remember? Oh, in time? Gee, I can't remember my list. Let me see. Oh, well... I, I think in my ch early childhood, there were all nature experiences. Uh, there was a, a little spring uh, near the great... Uh, we lived in a very small village. There was just a, a, a pub and a grocery store and, and a few houses, farmhouses. Uh, and next to the grocery store, uh, near, near it, maybe a minute's walk or so, there was a, a spring. And when my mother went shopping, I would like to go to the spring and just sit there. And it was ice cold, beautiful water. It was coming in a little wooden trough. It was coming right out of a, of a hill, just like that. A little brook ran, ran away. And I was just sitting at the spring, and I just lost myself. It was uh, not much to say about it, except 
it was a feeling of perfect at homeness in nature and this is it, you know, that kind of experience um, with the water there. I think that was a, a formative in the sense that it uh, really gave me a, a deep sense of at homeness in nature. Mm -hmm. uh, I was very grateful that we grew up in um, in the country uh, when I was between seven and Ten, not so long, but it was. Those were formative years. You like cats? Yes, I love cats. <laughs> <laughs> you are really well prepared. You know. <laughs> Tell us about. Is it Shirley or Shuri? Shirley. Shuri and Hansi. Tell us about Shuri and Hansi. What was the other one? Hansi, if I have it oh, right. That was, a, that was a bird. I know, yeah. I know, but I thought maybe you could tell oh, us the story of Shuri yes. and Hansi. That's a sad story. Well, but it's an early story. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, we had this cat, Schnurli. Schnurli means purr. To schnurren is to purr, so it has to do with purring. So that's why she was called Schnurli. She, she purred. Uh, and... We loved her. I have two brothers, and they all loved this cat. And then one day we are all sitting at the table, and down comes the Schnurli with our canary in her fangs. And the canary I had gotten before I could ever remember, I think to my first birthday or something like that. So at that time I was about six or seven, seven, I'm sure. And uh, so we had had this canary for a long time, and there was the cat with this canary, and we yelled, and uh, three boys yelling was too much for the cat. So uh, we opened the door, and out she zoomed, and never came back, just disappeared. So we had lost not only the canary, who was dead, but also the cat. <laughs> she, she was too ashamed to come back, the poor thing. You have this wonderful little unpublished uh, memoir of you cats you have known. Yes, <laughs> but what a wonderful thing! I hope you publish that. It's the most astonishingly touching. Well, somebody said to me, a friend who read it said, "But they're all so sad. They're all so sad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're all sad. Mm -hmm. They all have sad, sad endings." Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Your birth name was uh, was Franz Kuno. Is mm. that am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah. And um, you you didn't move to the village until you were about seven. Is that right? That's right. All yeah. right. That was the point at which your parents separated. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I hear a lot about your your mother, um, but I really don't hear much about your father. Could you tell me a little <clears throat> more about him? Well. Uh, the reason why uh, you don't know much about my father is that he didn't really play a very important role uh, in my conscious life. Uh, when my <coughs> when my parents were separated, my mother took my two brothers and went to the country. And at that time, separation was just an awful thing. It was a social stigma and. Uh, very painful for, for, for the children. And I stayed with my father because the other two were not yet in school and I was in school. So uh, 
I stayed in the city and went to school, but then my, uh, this was only a very short time, maybe a week or two, and my father couldn't handle me. He had, uh, had a coffee house. My was running a coffee house in Vienna. Uh, <clears throat> in Vienna, coffee houses are very important institutions. Very important. This was in the suburbs, so people would come on Sundays when the weather was nice and there was mm -hmm. a big park mm -hmm. and and then uh, not far from there, walking distance was Schönbrunn mm -hmm. and that's uh, the imperial palace with big gardens. So people would come to these gardens and uh, when the weather was good, the, <coughs> there would never be enough uh, pastry and so forth for, the, uh, for all the visitors and that was a big problem and when the weather was bad he was stuck with all this pastry that he couldn't sell so there was always excitement and this was the time of the depression on top of everything else so it was a very tense and difficult situation and so he couldn't have this boy all of a sudden at his hand so he put me in the boarding school in that same school where I used to go school that I liked very much uh, Christian Brothers ran it and, uh, but I was only there one or two nights, and then very unhappy, of course. And then my mother came by night and kidnapped me and <laughs> took me to the country. Took you to the country. <laughs> it was, when I think back on it, I imagine. I think some people have tremendous traumas, and mm -hmm. and um, <laughs> maybe I suppressed it all. <laughs> But whatever it is, it, uh, we were very sad that uh, I was very sad that my parents were not together mm -hmm. for ye many years. But otherwise, my mother was really a very good parent, and and we never missed anything. And so, uh, my father uh, at that time it was. Uh, I don't know how this was the legal setup, but anyway, we were all three with my mother and never saw my father at all. Mm. We didn't have shared custody, anything like that. And I'm very grateful for that. That would have been awful. I mm. can't, can't imagine. Uh, so we went with my mother and that was it. And we had to write to my father at Christmas and for his birthday. Uh, that was a little bit of a burden, but otherwise he was out of our picture. And we, I... As a person, I didn't miss him at all. Do you know what happened to him? Oh, he, he uh, continued there, and then he got remarried. Did uh, he survive the war? Oh, yeah. Uh, he, he had already been in the First World War, mm -hmm. um, and then he was in the Second World mm -hmm. War, uh, uh, but not on the front lines. He, he soon remarried. A woman had nothing to do with the divorce. A very wonderful woman was very kind to us because when we were uh, right after the war, uh, we were in Vienna and my father had gone to uh, Lienz, to uh, Tyrolia, and that was a much better place to be because it was under the British and uh, and we were divided, like Berlin was divided, uh -huh. uh, the Russians, and we were in the American zone, but still Vienna was divided. So it was good for us for uh, vacations and so to go to my father and my mother very much encouraged us. And uh, we went, spent many vacations there with him then, uh, but we re-met him as adults, young adults and had a very good relationship. He was very kind, and, and his wife was very, very kind to us. 
really wonderful. And uh, then uh, we, my brothers soon went to America and, and, uh, and I followed eventually. And <coughs> we still visited uh, my father. When I didn't get to Europe very often, but when I got to Europe to lecture here, uh, I had pretty long visits with him uh, on occasion. And then when we knew that he was dying, we also came over and visited with him. And uh, the, the last evening, with one of my brothers was, came earlier and another one came with me. And uh, the last evening we were with him. Uh, he, <coughs> he died at home. He had decided he would die at home. Uh, he had cancer, but he didn't die from cancer. He eventually died from... Uh, I think a heart attack, uh, pretty peacefully during his sleep. But he had decided to not go to the hospital. He lived in this farmhouse where he had grown up. And, uh, and our evening, we knew it was the last evening we would see one another, uh, he t was telling jokes <laughs> because he knew that as long as he was telling jokes, we couldn't uh, just say, you can't get up in the middle of a joke and say, all right, we have to go. <laughs> So he would tell one joke after the other, like Sheherazade in Thousand and One Nights. And, uh, and one of the jokes he told was and, uh, this man walking, and he uh, just wants to cross the street, and he hears this little voice, watch out, watch out, don't cross. And he looks, and that's, he would have run right into a car. And... Uh, the, he's very happy and he walks on and then uh, at the next crossing again a little boy says watch out and again he's just saved from being run over and he says well uh, who are you uh, the boy says I'm your guardian angel I'm sitting on your shoulder uh, protecting you all the time he says really sitting on my shoulder can you also sit on my hand Yes, he says, and now I'm sitting on your hand. And the man goes, where were you when I got married? And <laughs> 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 it was very poignant that my father should tell us that the last night before we <laughs> But uh, it was very nice because he... Uh, made perfect peace with my mother and uh, I remember on, on that occasion even writing a letter to her he wasn't in bed he was up and, and around and he didn't even have to wear glasses he wrote this wrote a letter to my mother to give to us to take along so it was very peaceful and then I was in, in Hawaii a few weeks later uh, on my way to New Zealand or Australia I can't remember and I got a telephone call there that my father had died. You're listening to a conversation with Brother David Stendelrast and host Michael Lerner. In Hawaii, it was still... It was a... How was it? Uh, I think in Hawaii... Yeah, in Hawaii it was the 20th of June... And he had died on the 21st of June because in Europe they were that far ahead. 
And uh, we had said our last words anyway, so I acknowledged that. And of course, it was sad. And then uh, two hours later, I had to take the plane to Australia. And when I arrived, it was the 22nd. So the 21st of June, uh, 1980, when my father died, never appears in my biography. That How day is wonderful. not there. Yeah. He was out of my life, and so mm. also this, this day was not there. Very Remarkable. Yeah. You were uh, 12 years old when Hitler uh, marched into Austria. Um, and uh, you spent the years from 12 to 19 uh, under the Nazi occupation. Um, your family just barely survived. Uh, there was a period when you were eating weeds to, oh, yeah. to stay alive. Uh, there was a time when a bomb dropped on the house where you had taken refuge and you saw a little square of grass and you said, I've never seen grass that green. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, I've read, uh, again, a, an unpublished uh, piece that, again, I hope you publish someday on that period of time. I don't know. I know it may be something you don't want to publish. Well, I hope it's for the family, you know, yeah, yeah. part of the war, yeah. But it certainly is a wonderful... Um, document of your life, and I just want to express the hope that someday it uh, is included among your papers. You know, these very bad experiences, uh, the, the hunger and all that, uh, and even the burst of the bombing and so forth, that was pretty much towards the end of that period. Mm -hmm. But I remember my teens, even though they were overshadowed by uh, Hitler, mm -hmm. Uh, as very, very happy youth. I mean, mm -hmm. I can't imagine anybody having a, a more fun and, mm -hmm. and, and really a very happy a ch a childhood and youth. And the first two years, uh, from 10 to 12, I was uh, in a boarding school uh, run by Catholic uh, lay people, and, uh, and that was probably the most important spiritual impetus mm -hmm. in my life. Uh, they really, there was a forming influence. They, they were a wonderful group, uh, had grown out of the uh, German youth movement, which uh, people nowadays confuse with the Hitler movement. Was Hitler tried to infiltrate it and, uh, and pervert it, but the youth movement in Germany had a very long history, it went back uh, a century or so in one form or the other and was uh, <coughs> openness towards nature, hiking, natural living, natural foods, many of the ideals that mm -hmm. we have nowadays were cultivated by these people. And uh, so this school had been built right after World War One uh, by young people uh, who started a kindergarten and the next year uh, first grade and every year they added a grade and the te they were teachers and educators and uh, they were so dedicated that some of them would walk to the school just to save those few pennies 
uh, and contribute them to the school fund uh, instead of go, taking a tram. Uh, so they were very dedicated people and, and very loving and, and very alive and also spiritually. We had uh, 30 years before anybody else had uh, the art to turn to the people. That was totally unheard of at that time. And uh, the mass largely in German. Uh, those were all things that came in uh, with Vatican II uh, some 30 years later. Mm. So we were very, very progressive and uh, very liberal uh, spiritually. And then when the Nazis came, they immediately tried to destroy the school. Uh, didn't close it, but uh, they gave us a, a, took away the dean and gave us another dean who was uh, very hostile to anything religious and so forth. So uh, much of this went underground. Uh, the students and, and a few of the old faculty that still were around and uh, we would even go um, on hikes, uh, to, uh, we called them fart, so that's not just a hike for a day, but it was for several days or sometimes for a week, ski camps and things like that we would do. Mm. And that was uh, considered uh, illegal really because we were not, uh, for, in the school it was all right because it was under the heading of the school. Mm. But otherwise, for more than two boys to gather, unless it was in the Hitler Jugend, that was already considered um, subversive. You know? So uh, it, it, we lived with it was very, it was thrilling. It was just wonderful. It's exactly what young people want to do these <laughs> illegal things. But they drove us deeper and deeper into spirituality because the, the, that was what we were reacting against, the oppression of the spiritual things. So that was, it was really good for me at that, that time. So do you remember what you were like when you were 12 years old? How would I describe myself when mm -hmm. I was 12 years old? Absolutely not sportly, sporty. Mm -hmm. you know? I was one of those when they choose teams mm -hmm. for ball games. I was always next to the last or the last that was chosen by, for to be on the team. <laughs> I think today you'd probably say a geek. I was a geek. <laughs> <laughs> well, what kind of geek were you? Uh, I liked. Art, I like drawing and painting, I did a lot of drawing. Mm -hmm. I, I, when I was already, uh, I think, six years old or so, uh, I, when people ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would always say a landscape painter, mm -hmm. because my, my father had a collection of paintings. That was the uh, time of the Depression, and so we had very often painters at our table Mm -hmm. hungry painters and then they would give my father a painting or so and, so very, and my uncles and great uncles they all had some of them rather famous collections of paintings so we, painting was in the family and uh, my father too very well too uh, he was he was always doing the same thing he was always drawing with pencil deer he loved deer, and he was always drawing deer, very, very And And you, in a sense, inherited a preference for line over color. Absolutely, yes. yes. Yeah, and Klimt and Scheele are among the, the 
artists that you yeah, most yeah. admire. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, that's, that was, that was mm. so. So uh, I was interested in nature and in art and in music uh, and in singing. Mm -hmm. uh, those were the things I really... Were you interested in the church? Very much. I'm, I don't even need to mention that because that was our life. That was we, your life. We lived. Mm -hmm. That was it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it was even before I came to that Catholic school, uh, Neulandschule, by the way, is, is, is the name of it, and that still exists, and I was there uh, last year or the year before, and I was surprised. Uh, I thought I would have about... A handful of students, but they crowded the place. They were sitting on the windowsill and they crowded by the door. They were so interested. <laughs> so are they are they appreciative of you as an alumnus of the yeah, school? Yeah, very much so, uh -huh. yeah. But uh, we had the first... Uh, when I first came there, I was there twice. First, second time alone and the first time uh, was the first class reunion that we ever had. And it wasn't just my class, but it was two or three classes of that period. And there were still some 20 or so survivors. And the class reunion was organized because one of, my, uh, uh, one of the boys in the class below me was getting his, uh, his uh, report card for having graduated from, from gymnasium. Uh, he never got it, and he had, uh, he, was, he is now a world-renowned uh, physicist, uh, Dr. Thiering. He's very well known and has all sorts of honorary doctorates, but he had never gotten his Maturenzeugnis. <laughs> 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 he had never gotten that. Uh, because it was such a confusion in the war, uh, and he, he had been drafted to something, uh, I think uh, workforce or something, and he never got it, so they gave it to him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wonderful. <reunion. laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> but the school is still a very good school, and this is still going on. And, uh, uh, and continues. And continues. Wonderful. And it gave me so much, but uh, even in, in the village, we lived the church year must be much closer to the Middle Ages than we are now to that time. Mm -hmm. uh, we lived from one feast to the other. We always knew what saint's feast was coming up. There were different customs for each feast, and especially, of course, Christmas, Easter, and uh, we were engaged in it. We would, uh, was, my mother was very supportive, too. For instance, uh, there's a custom where you go from house to house and with a star and you sing at the Epiphany and you sing and then you get little arms. And we, we wanted to do that. And my mother was, gave us bed linen to wear because that how we fitted, we fitted out and crowns, we made paper crowns. Uh, and we, I remember still the surprise that she would let us wear bed linen. That was unbelievable. I was so surprised. And, uh, and then one of us was black. There was the black king. Everybody wanted to be the black king. My mother would always bake a cake on the epiphany and there was a ring of hers in. And whoever got the ring was the black king. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
It was always in the very last piece, it seems to me. And she would always say, one of you swallowed it. One of you must have swallowed it. And then one, one little piece. And that was finally that ring. And then who got it was the Black King. We always wanted that. Then we go from house to house. Little things like that. Getting the Easter fire. At that time, people were extinguishing in the whole village all the fires. Everybody was cooking with with wood. We didn't have a electric or a gas stove. We had a wood stove. My mother was cooking and baking everything on wood stove. We didn't have a refrigerator. We didn't have a telephone. It seems almost impossible at that time when you think back. Uh, and <clears throat> so at Easter, when the from the Easter candle, uh, we would have prepared little tin cans uh, on strings for censers and then charcoal, they made the charcoal out of uh, this fungus that goes on trees. Everything was prepared. The older boys were always teaching the younger ones. And then uh, from that fire, from the Easter candle, we would take the fire and bring it from house to house and everybody would start a new fire for the next year. Those are beautiful memories. So those beautiful memories are of the early years, but then there came a time, uh, May 1944 to February of 45, uh, you were drafted into the army. Yeah, uh, no. and, um, <laughs> and And in the time leading up to that, and then the time that you were in the army, uh, that was just reading this family memoir that you created, an extraordinarily difficult period of time. It was very difficult, particularly since all our friends died uh, mm -hmm. constantly, our classmates and friends. Uh, and uh, they were on the front, and every few, every few weeks, notice came that somebody had died, and then the bombs left and right also. At home, so it, we had we were surrounded by death, mm -hmm. and that was the reason why we lived so intensely, because we had death before our eyes. And uh, my, uh, but also I was incredibly protected. That uh, I remember the day when I was got my draft, uh, uh, notice. Was draft notice, mm -hmm. yeah. And I was sitting in, in a church and I was just crying and crying. There was nobody else in the church. And then a woman came in and she came over to me and she put her arm around me and consoled me. Uh, and then that uh, 31st of May, um, when I was actually drafted to the barracks, uh, my mother took me there. It wasn't far from Vienna, about an hour by train. And... <clears throat> And then we sat, uh, but there was a little time still, and we sat by the Danube and we took off our shoes and we uh, uh, let our feet hang into the water. And then it was time and I had to go in. And there were <coughs> wards on both sides, uh, high wards, and, and they led to this entrance of, this of the barracks. The barracks were uh, over 200 years old, a huge stone building. And uh, and I had to walk in there. It was like going to death. I was absolutely worse than dying. Uh, and then I came in there, and unbelievable, my closest friend was sitting there, and we, we got into the same company. 
That was unheard of. He was drafted uh, many weeks earlier. But there was no reason why we should get into the same thing. Absolutely unexplainable. And we spent many months, I think, or at least many weeks together uh, in basic training. That was already an incredible start. And, uh, and then every time somebody was, uh, my uh, group was sent off to the front lines, uh, I've stayed behind for some reason or other. Uh, eventually, uh, of course, I got to know the people there, and, uh, and then we were pulling strings. They said, you should uh, volunteer to become a truck driver because we have no more trucks. Uh, so <laughs> I volunteered to be a truck driver. That was a very safe position. I was accepted. <laughs> And, um, and also what, what saved my life was the lice, because we had so many, these bed bugs, not really lice, but bed bugs is a different thing. Uh, we had so many bed bugs in, this, in these old barracks, uh, that, uh, and I seemed to be particularly uh, attractive to them, so they, they were all over me, and it really ate me up. And we had... 30 beds, uh, bunk beds, uh, 30 people sleeping in this one room, and only one table. And the, the others allowed me to sleep on the table because they saw how the bed box were getting after me. And even on the table, these bed box were eating me up. They came from everywhere. And so in the middle of the night, I went down and showed myself to the um, health the infirmary. infirmary down there and they took one look and they said well stay here because I was sick and then I made friends with the people in the infirmary and that gave me a chance to, and then they asked do you, uh, do you know Latin and of course fluently uh, <laughs> if that's the condition of becoming one of them <laughs> so <laughs> I stayed there and became one of those uh, infirmary helpers. And then I had to accompany uh, recruits to the uh, hospital in Vienna. And on those occasions, we got permission to sleep at home. And we just had to go to the hospital. And everything was breaking down at more and more. And uh, eventually... Uh, we would go for really weeks on end, I think from mid-February until uh, early April, more, yeah, almost two months, we would go every day to this hospital, which was a lot, many hours, two hours or more, uh, but there were no trams or anything, so you'd crawl over the ruins and you get there. And then we got there in the morning, they would give us a stamp, uh, and then immediately the um, air raid came. We, we knew it would come at 10 or 10.15. If it came later, uh, we were afraid that something happened to them. They were our friends. They were their allies. So air raid was pretty safe. Then we went down into the um, air shelter, uh, and then we came up about 3, and we got another stamp that it was too late to be processed, and we walked home. So we were kind of covered, and, uh, and we could do that day after day after day. 
And during that time, uh, one of my brothers came already home uh, from uh, Arbeitsdienst, the work. They had to do uh, half a year work, public work, and then after that, uh, uh, military. So between, they could come home. He came home and uh, had to go to the front again. And he really went to the front, and I was already home and stayed home. And my other brother, who was only 15, was also drafted, and my mother sent him away and said she didn't know where he was, and he was hiding with relatives. I would do this routine, and then eventually we saw the fire at night coming closer and closer from the Russians, and we heard the guns, and the, and the cathedral burnt down in Vienna. Which was a huge thing. The burning of the cathedral was a tremendous... There was the, the, they said that a, a whole forest was needed to build this uh, roof, huge thing. And, uh, and it all burnt down. We now saw you, it from looking down, you know. You speak of your mother as uh, the lion mother. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's an interesting story because her mother was um, uh, a, uh, a force of her own in uh, working in World War I to save orphan children and get them to neutral countries. And then she was in Philadelphia and the cardinal there heard that in she Baltimore. was Baltimore, yeah. that she was leaving your mother at home, and so he arranged for your mother to come to Notre Dame School. Right. Yeah. That was Cardinal Gibbons. Right. And, uh, and then my grandmother went back and forth every year between Austria and the United States mm -hmm. because she was raising funds for this. Uh, after First it was the war orphans and then it was refugees all along. We had so many refugees in Austria. Uh, and. Um, and when Hitler came, she didn't come back anymore. And my mother wanted to take all of us out, uh, but uh, the Nazis would let her out, but kept us back. We were on her passport. The three boys would have to stay behind as, as hostages. As and so she, she came back. back. She came back with she the She chose last. to come back she to be come. with the three oh, of you, yeah. and she could have been safe. Oh, sure. Yeah. But she yeah. chose to come back and, and yeah. was fierce and protecting you. She was. And yeah. that's hence the lion mother. We yes. called her the lioness. Yeah. 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 Uh, and my, yeah, as you said, my grandmother was already a very mm -hmm. strong woman. She was the first woman in Austria to talk on the radio, for mm -hmm. instance, and things like that. And very much for women's rights and all that. More so than my mother. My mother was mellower. Mm -hmm. uh, and then after the war, uh, my brothers came over as quickly as they could, and um, I stayed and finished uh, my studies over there. There was a time after the Russians had come in um, when um, you had to protect your mother and every woman, younger woman around from rape uh, and so on. You had to hide them. Yes, and, the uh, first group of, mm -hmm. of Russians were very nice, mm -hmm. the, the, the mm -hmm. ones who liberated us. Uh, they were really very nice and kind. Mm -hmm. And many of them spoke German. Mm -hmm. They had apparently learned that. Mm -hmm. 
but then the next group, mm -hmm. uh, they, they were uh, plundering and, uh, and, mm -hmm. and raping everywhere. So we had to, uh, we had one of those beds where you put the bedding, it's, it's a box mm -hmm. and you put mm -hmm. the bedding inside and on top it has uh, upholstery like for a, for a couch. And, uh, by day it's a couch and by night you turn the mattresses over and then they are bed and you take the bedding out. So we put the bedding somewhere else and my mother and uh, another woman, a friend of ours, and her daughter, they were all in this, in this bed and we had propped it up like a piano, a mm -hmm. grand piano. And uh, I say we because there was another soldier and I who, uh, the other soldier was the one that had to go to the hospital and I was the accompanist and uh, he stayed with us for quite a while before he went home. And so he was still with us at the time and he spoke Czech and so he could speak a little with the Russians, that was helpful too. And uh, so we, we had this bed propped open and every time we heard the Russians coming, we had no door because were the very earliest ones that came shot into the lock and so from then on the door was always open. And, and they came in and out and the first ones yeah, kept us alive. They, they brought us soup and they brought us bread and so forth. Then, the, so they would come in, and when we heard them come in, we would quickly close the bed and either sit on it or go somewhere else. And one time, a Russian sat on it <laughs> for quite a while. <laughs> and uh, but these other two women had already been uh, raped by the Russians. And this this young girl too. And uh, but my mother fortunately escaped. And then <coughs> there was a Russian uh, maid. The, Russian, the Germans took Ukrainians and Poles and and, other, and Russians and and made them uh, domestic help, uh, slaves more or less. And uh, one of them across the, the street. Uh, the Russians asked her if, she, if we were not soldiers because we were that age. And she said, no, no, they are just boys. So she saved our life. Uh, and on the other side, there was a younger girl uh, and the Russians were after her and she spent one night on a tree and then she disappeared. And the Russians uh, said, we would know where she is and unless we produce her, they're going to shoot us. So they took me into this house where she was and uh, the, uh, the man who lived there had been an officer in World War I and was quite distinguished also in the Austrian underground against the Nazis. Um, so he, he was very self-possessed and he kept talking to them. He said, no, we don't know where she is. And keep talking, keep talking. And as long as you keep talking to someone when they stand there with a machine gun, it's a little difficult to shoot. You just... <laughs> in the middle of a sentence. So he kept talking and talking, and they had taken a bucket and put it over the head of his wife, so she was standing there in the corner with a bucket over her head. And uh, I must say, I wasn't at all afraid. I was just totally numb, uh, totally numb. And then we heard uh, this neighbor uh, rattling on the garden uh, gate because he, 
he was because the Russians were shooting into the air, and he was afraid they were shooting us. So they left us when they heard him and went on and shot him. Uh, and uh, then the Russians, uh, the officers apologized for this incident, and to console his widow, they gave a big banquet. We had nothing to eat, we were just starving, they had everything. And my mother was invited, I wasn't invited, but my mother said, there was soldier, a soldier with white gloves standing behind every, ta every chair, and, uh, and a big banquet table, and they were serving all the finest food. And then on the way home, my mother was so uh, afraid that the Russian who was walking her home, it was just a few steps, but would come in with her. So she managed somehow to get in and the Russian went home. Mm -hmm. and, but then that was too much for us. We, we took a little cart and we put all the belongings on it and we pulled it to another district of the city where we, there was a convent and there were already scores of women hiding there, and we knew that. And uh, so my mother spent the rest of the time there. Mm -hmm. And then the, the first uh, Americans that came were already, uh, had already a letter and came directly to us, found, found our address, because my grandmother knew General Keyes, who was the head of the occupation force in Austria, and then they asked my mother to start an officer's mess, and she started an officer's mess in one of the empty buildings, and uh, she said she wanted to do it um, not salaried, but uh, she wanted to be able to, that we all could live there and eat there. That was the main thing, her family. And she had a, a very extended sense of family, so a <laughs> lot of people ate this American food. <laughs> And uh, there was one child who definitely, everybody said he would have starved to death and uh, my mother could keep him going. Um, so that was wonderful for us. Yeah. But in between, uh, we, we, the young people were asked by the cardinal to go and help the refugees. There were all these refugees coming in from uh, former Czechoslovakia. So we were going out there and we had nothing. We had no medically surprised. We had absolutely nothing. Just a cassock, because we were supplied with cassocks that protected us from the Russian soldiers. They were respectful for that. And then we hitchhiked with the Russian soldiers and into this northern part of, of uh, Lower Austria. And when we saw these streams of of refugees, literally crowds on the roads. We would ask the pastor, could we have the school? And then we would make a, a camp in, in the school. That was Wilkersdorf. Yeah. Where you, you were responsible for the refugee camp. Yeah. And there's some beautiful letters of testimony from people who yes, were there. Some of them much later, they still wrote about it. Mm -hmm. Did you see that? Mm -hmm. yeah, yes, yeah. I did. Well, let's stop there for a moment, Brother David, and, and take a break, and we'll be just stretched, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. You've been listening to a conversation with Brother David Stendelrast and Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website at the-new-school.org. That's the-new-school.org. Thank you for listening.